0: Have you ever noticed how almost uh, everything today seems uh, to be polluted? Seems to be toxic or bad for you in, uh, in some way. The food we eat and drink, right? We're always told about the MSG or the processed sugars or the aspartame or the hormones or the gluten problems or the cholesterol, something in there that's going to be bad for us. The containers that the food comes in, the plastic bottles, the aluminum pans, they're all poisoning us, poisoning the water, contaminated the food as we cook it. The homes we live in, right? Got their asbestos or or radon or toxic carpet fibers. The cars we drive are putting out emissions that are ruining the air we breathe. And then the medications that we take to try to fight off the effects of our toxic world, come with scary warnings about all the catastrophic things they might do to our bodies. Everything seems to be polluted. And as much as I know I like to kind of mock all of the fear-mongering that goes along with this, it's true. We live in a messed-up, polluted world that is slowly degrading and killing us. And we feel it. We see it. We see it in our bodies, right? We see the the diseases. We see the contamination. We see the degrading. And the, the thing is, the Bible says that what is even more devastating than this is that this is also our reality spiritually. We live in a spiritually toxic world of impurity and filth, and immorality all around us. It's everywhere, coming through our TVs and our phones, just pumped in into our homes, into our lives. Constant filth and pornography and greed and corruption. Ideas and teachings that are, are, are poisoning our minds and debasing our souls. And of course, it's not just all around us, the Bible says. It's in us. Mark tells us that The worst of evils come out of our own hearts. And it's dragging us down to death. Maybe even hell. It's kind of this slow poison of our own partaking. Wherein our consciences are marred and weighed down. And our relationships are degraded. And so we feel dirty and gross in our very souls. And even if we fight it. It's like we can't seem to get all the dirt off or, or get it all out. So we, as we try to be clean, we, we just keep getting dirty. Because we're drawn in by the spiritual pollution, the allure of sin. It's like candy. It seems so good, but then it eats away and it makes us sick. And the overall effect can be pretty discouraging. can be pretty hardening. Hopeless. So starting on that positive note, let's take a look at this wonderful wedding story and see if it has anything to say to this issue of pollution in our very souls. Our text this morning is a famous one. We learned, all of us probably learned about it for the first time in Sunday school. Jesus' first big miracle, he turned Water into wine at a wedding. Because the, the, the wine for the party, for the reception, had, had run out. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now it's hard for us to catch the the drama here, but culturally at the time, this is a very big deal. This is a wedding disaster. Now, as a pastor, I've uh, done a lot of weddings, and I can tell you uh, a lot of things can go wrong there can be a lot of disasters that happen at weddings, and you guys all know this because you have YouTube or whatever. You can just put in "wedding disaster" and see, right? The the dresses flying up, and the hair catching fire, and the whole wedding party getting blown away in a storm, or you know somebody drinking too much and making terrible toasts at the reception. You know that kind of disaster. And they happen. If you're getting married soon, don't don't worry. I'll tell you like 51, 50 percent of the time they go great. But in this wedding, something really has gone wrong, and it's a big problem. Weddings, back, you think weddings are, are big deals today? Weddings back then were, were six times the event they are today, literally. They, they started with a feast, and then they had this, the ceremony, and then they would march the bride and groom through the, the city, like kind of up on, their, uh, on a little platform, and then they had a six day reception. A six-day party where the the, the bride and groom are kind of put up there as like king and queen for for the week. It was the biggest event of their life. And this wedding party had barely gotten started, and they are out of wine. And it wasn't like there was a lot of other beverages, right? It wasn't like, well, they have Coke, and they got some beer, and they... They were out of wine. They were out of it. There was nothing to drink. This is a major social faux pas. In fact, there's evidence that relatives of the bride could bring a lawsuit against the groom for such a humiliation. In a shame culture, this is the kind of thing that would stigmatize you for life. So when Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine, make no mistake, there is panic in her voice. Most commentators think this is probably a relative or at least a close friend of her who's involved in this wedding. So she's upset. But the good news is, we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus knocks it out of the park, right? He does his very first miracle. He changes the water into wine. He saves the whole wedding, the whole party. And the disciples are so impressed that you get to the end of the story, and it says this in verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. The first signs of their belief. Remember, this is early on. So the point is clear. The story of, of the story is that we should believe in Jesus because he does incredible miracles like God, right? That's the probably how I heard it in Sunday school, and it It's true, but uh, that's actually not the end. It would be a short sermon. We can't stop with that because there's so much more for us to actually learn here. Yes, in a way, this sermon does operate, uh, this, this text does operate at a very basic level. According to John twenty thirty one the very purpose that John records all the miracles of Jesus is so, so that people will know that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and believe. And that's exactly what happens here. But note the end of chapter 2. This is how we know that there, there must be a little more. Look, note the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, when they saw the miracles. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You see, this event is not merely demonstrating that Jesus is powerful so as to, you know, induce belief. And that's the end of it, because Jesus doesn't even trust such faith. What I like to call magic trick, miracle faith, he doesn't even trust it. He knows the sinful heart of man needs more, needs a deeper faith. So the question then is, what is the purpose of this event? And I'm going to suggest to you that it's deeper than an exhibition of power to induce belief. And we see this in the first, this this extra depth. We see it in the very uh, response of Jesus' mother in verse 4. This is the first clue we get. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, so she said to him, there's no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's a strange exchange. At first, it seems like Jesus is being a bit uh, rude to his mother, like she's dragged him to this wedding, and now there's this wine problem, and she's dragging him into it, and he's like, woman, what does this have to do with me? But we need to note two things. First, the Greek word for woman here is, is more like the word ma'am. It's a pretty courteous term. He's not being disrespectful. And note that Jesus... Is actually posing a question to her. Let's read it again, verse four. And Jesus said to her woman, "What does this have to do with me? Look at the rest of the sentence. My hour has not yet come." Now, the word "hour" is a uh, a pretty important term in the Gospel of John. He's saying, "What does this have to do with me and my my hour?" I want us to trace it. Grab your Bibles. Let's look at the term hour in the Gospel of John real quick. Chapter 8 is the next occurrence of it. Chapter 8, verse 20. This is what it says in chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now go over to chapter 12, verse 23. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and he answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And skip to verse 27. Now now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now go to chapter 13, verse 1. And before the feast of Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And finally, chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, chapter 17, verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may, be, may glorify you since you had given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So what's the hour about? What's Jesus' hour about? What's it pointing to? His hour is the cross. He's looking forward to that hour, the hour of his uh, his death and resurrection. He's saying to her, what does this have to do, this event, with my dying at the cross and my resurrection. He's not saying this because he doesn't understand. He's saying this because he wants her to ponder the significance of this moment. John himself will strengthen such an interpretation of this verse with his editorial note. Go back to chapter 2, the story, and note in verse 11, this little thing that John says at the end of this After Jesus turns the water into wine, he says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifest his glory. He tells us this is a sign. Now what does a sign do? A sign isn't about itself, right? A sign points you forward to something. A sign tells you like, oh, Seattle this way. It's not about itself. It's about pointing you forward to something more. It gives us directions to something more. And the more here is is Jesus' glory. It says that it's going to manifest his glory. It's going to show us his glory. So this simple water-to-wine miracle points us forward to the cross and shows us something of Jesus' glory in it. It reveals something about the very nature of his work at the cross. This is the question we're supposed to ask as we come to this text. We're supposed to ask... What does Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding teach us about the significance of the cross and his resurrection? What does it teach us? Now, before we answer that question, I want us to note a little principle that's being shown to us here that's very important, an interpretive principle. And it's simply this. The meaning of Jesus' miracles don't really lay in the miracle themselves or the miracle itself but in how that miracle relates and reveals to the the cross. The miracles aren't about themselves. They're actually teaching us about something about Jesus' work, his saving work. If we forget this, we end up with all kinds of weird applications. For instance, you take this miracle, water into wine at a wedding. What's the point? Jesus turns water into wine. Thus, Jesus loves wine and a good party. Christians need to relax. Or Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus is our provider in times of need. May be very true. I don't think that's what this is about. Jesus turns water into wine and solves this terrible social crisis. He's our social crisis intervener. Jesus turns water into wine. Well, he saved their marriage. He can save yours. All these things may be true, but that is not what this text is about. And to rip this miracle out of its theological context and to apply it to the most convenient felt need is to cheapen it and to miss it. And you will find this principle applies through all the Gospels. Jesus' powerful miracles must be understood in light of the cross. They must never overshadow it as an act in themselves. And we're terrible about this. In today's Christianity, we love magic trick miracle Christianity. We love to apply these miracles in that way. There are whole ministries that you look at them, you would think that the central thing that Jesus is about is feeding the hungry because, hey, look, he fed the hungry in this miracle. Or he's about healing because, look, he healed people. Or he's about helping the poor because he did. And he did it miraculously. All those things are true. The problem is, is that when we make these things central, they become the very basis of our faith. And it's the kind of faith that Jesus doesn't trust. It's the kind of faith that's shallow. We must not have miracle magic trick Christianity. Okay, back to the actual meaning of this particular miracle and how it relates to the cross. How it reveals the nature of his work there? Well, we see it in the t- these two main images, these symbolic elements in this text. And the first is the wine. John, throughout this book, demonstrate that, demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament images and institutions and because of that, he's ushering in the Messianic age. So he shows how he fulfills the law. John will show how he fulfills the temple, how he is the cleansing water, how he is the bread of heaven, how he is God's glory come down, the Shekinah glory, how he is the vine and the branches. All these are images from the Old Testament. The light, the good shepherd, all these things he's going to show that Jesus fulfills and that they, they, they bring in the Messianic age and thus Jesus is the Messiah. That's what John is going to do. And the wine here is no different. In the Old Testament, wine often represented joy and blessing. Psalm 104.15 says, wine gladdens the heart of man. There are passages in Judges where the vine is personified and it speaks, and it says, should I leave my wine which cheers both God and man to go have sway over the trees? The wine that cheers God and man. And judgment is often expressed in the taking away of wine. Read Jeremiah 48. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from their presses. Wine symbolizes joy and blessing. And thus, as the prophets of the Old Testament look forward to the Messianic age, they speak about it in terms of an abundance of wine. That's why I had that read from Amos where the the mountains are flowing with wine in the Messianic age. In Genesis 49, when the Messiah comes, the prediction is that you'll tie your donkey to the grapevines because he can just eat the grapes and you'll wash your clothes in wine. There's such an abundance. You can just let the donkeys loose in the vineyards. And here we have Jesus suddenly told there's no wine and he has a teaching moment doesn't he he does this all the time when he's in the temple or when he's at the well teaching moments and he says woman i want you to consider what's about to happen what it has to do with my hour and he changes the water into wine an abundance of wine how much wine How much, if you look at it, calculate it, how much wine? Look down. The jars are like, what, 30, 40, how many jars? Six jars, 30, it's like 180 gallons of wine. Think about how much wine that is. That's a lot of wine. Cana's a very small town. I think the whole town had a lot of wine. And the master of the feast, when he tastes it, what does he say about it? This isn't just wine. This is the best wine. This is incredible wine. Jesus is the Messiah who brings the true joy, the overflowing joy of the messianic age in abundance. He's ushering in the age of joy. But let me just say, it's not just a a joy that's out there, just a partying joy. There's a good reason for it. And we see it in the next symbol, kind of the symbolic items that are here, which is the jars themselves. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone jars, stone water jars, there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. It's interesting. Note the unnecessary detail that John doesn't need to mention what kind of jars these are, but he does. He makes sure they know, the reader knows. These are the purification jars, the jars full of water. And these aren't, these aren't little jars. I think of like a little you know purification water, like a little you know, vase of holy water or something. No, these are massive stone jars to hold all this water because the Jews were constantly striving to follow their cleanliness laws, to make themselves clean before God. They were constantly washing themselves, their hands, their cups, their dishes, even their dining couches, striving at at a clean exterior to kind of foster internal purity. It was endless. It was an endless struggle of purification with these giant jars of water there so that they always had what they needed. Remember, Jesus could have just said, Oh, you're out of wine? Bring me the wine jugs. I'll fill them up. But he looks over at the purification jars. He said, what does this have to do with me, women? And he looks over at the purification jars. And he fills them. It says here, to the brim. He fills them full with incredible wine. He replaces the ceremonial washing waters with his wine and fills the old repetitive water hopeless system of purification to the brim. Do you see the picture? He fills them full. You might say fulfillment. Filling and replacing the old way of religion. Jesus doesn't get rid of the Old Testament religion. He just fills it up to the full and makes it obsolete as a system. In the Old Testament, they had the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. In the Old Testament, they had God's glory, the Shekinah glory in the temple. Jesus is God himself tabernacling with us. The very presence of God. In the Old Testament, they had the temple to experience God. Jesus, as we're going to see in the next chapter, says, I'm the temple. I'm where you meet God. In the Old Testament, they struggled to keep the law He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He kept it with his perfect obedience life. They had rituals and sacrifices to try and cleanse themselves from sin. What does John say when he first sees him? Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He fulfills the whole system. Now, when we get hold of this, we can answer Jesus' question about this water-to-wine event and what it has to do with his hour, what it reveals about his work at the cross, how it shows, in a sense, his, his glory, his awesomeness. And the answer is, he brings real purification. The real, total purification that we need. You see, the Lamb of God, as he hung on the cross and died for the sins of the world, in that moment, he brought final and full purification for you and for me, for all. It was the moment our souls were washed clean that we may be known before our God. And thus, it really does bring absolute joy, pure joy. Like the joy of a, a wedding celebration with the, with the best wine. This is what this water to wine at a wedding event is about. If you think I'm stretching it, flip over to chapter 3, verse 25, where John reinforces this idea. Listen to this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. At the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Hmm. We have a baptism, washing, bridegrooms, brides, joy, rejoicing. Jesus is the new bridegroom bringing to his bride a baptism that is better than John's. It's not mere external washing of water, but a cleansing of the soul, like the new wine filling up the purification jars to the brim so that John's joy is complete. It's interesting. The world offers or tries to bring a a certain joy and delight with its pollution, doesn't it? That's what it's offering you. Go after this. Go after this pornography, go after this perversion, go after this pollution, and, and, and you'll have this delight, the delight of evil, the delight of the forbidden. And it's something we know that it's, it's temporary, it's right there, you can have it right now. And it seems so good, but of course its joy is, is surface, and it's, and it's shallow, and it quickly spoils Rots us from the inside. No true joy is in purity, not pollution. It's a being washed and made clean. The world offers it in sin, religion offers it, doesn't it? But it offers it in works, in rituals that you can never do enough and it's hopeless. No pure joy. The joy of cleansing only comes in Christ Jesus through his cleansing at the cross. That's what our soul is yearning for. That's the joy you really want and need. This is what Christ offers. And and it's interesting, the world offers it now and then it's gone but Jesus offers it in him, and when does it come to its full fruition? In heaven. It's something we wait for, and it's beautiful. And I think it's hard for us to grasp the, the kind of, this kind of purity that, that brings such joy, because we're all born into sin. At our most innocent, we're contaminated creatures. All we ever know is dirty souls surrounded by a toxic world, just layers of scum building up on us. But if we knew what it was like to the fullness of the purity that we receive in Christ in heaven. I was trying to think of an example I could think about as times when I've gone camping for like a whole week or something. I haven't showered the whole time and I've been hiking and you get the layers of sweat and dirt and soot from the fire at night, you know, and it just goes on. And you finally get home and you have that first shower. How does it feel? It's like incredible. You're just like, "Ah, oh, the layers. You stand there in the shower and soak it in. Picture that just a billion times over in heaven. Complete purity from the inside out. In our lives, in our relationships, in the new heavens, in the new earth. That's joy. And we need to believe that. You need to remember that, young people, when the world is offering its, its, its delight in pollution, it's empty true, perfect, complete purity is the only place of real joy and it only comes in Christ. I can't wait for it. And you can trust him and he will cleanse you for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to fall to this toxic world And we don't have to be hopeless before our religious efforts to cleanse ourselves. That your son has given us perfect, pure life to make us clean. May we know that joy, Lord. Amen.